Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Philippians 2, page 1349 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We're sort of in this, the, the beginning of Philippians 2 is one of the most familiar places in Scripture. It's certainly uh, the section that we're at right now in uh, this chapter is considered to be the, the central part of this whole book that everything that Paul writes in the letter to Philippi sort of uh, comes out of, some, in some way is, leads to this passage. And so we're just grateful that God's given us the opportunity to go through this this morning. I want us to consider this question first. If you have your listening guides, what if each and every one of us has the opportunity to be truly great? Now, I don't mean to do something great. I mean to be great. And I don't mean, you know, to be just, you know, great maybe in, uh, uh, you know, in the eyes of a few or maybe in your own eyes or something like that. No, I'm talking about real greatness. I'm talking about kingdom greatness. I'm talking about genuine, authentic greatness in the kingdom of God. What if we embraced the reality that every single one of us in this room, every one of us watching online, every one of us, regardless of, of any of the uh, circumstances around us, that no situation in your past, no hindrance in your present, not your education, not your occupation, not your boss, not your giftedness, not your financial situation, no family member, no health condition, no joy, no sorrow, no suffering, no loss. What if nothing could prevent you from this greatness? None of those things could keep you from realizing this greatness. But there is one thing that can stop us. Us. The only thing that can stop us is us. And so you have to, you have to answer the question and examine the reality of the world in which we live in or the culture. I mean the Christian culture, the church at large. Maybe this church or your community or the people around you or however you want to look at it. Is greatness, true greatness, is it, the, is it the common experience of your life and the people around you? How could something so available to such a large group of people seems so rare. Now, before we read this text, I want to remind you of the context. Because it's important to understand and be reminded of what the context of what I'm about to read to you and you're going to read and we're going to walk through 
Let's remember that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi. But let's remember who these people are. Let's remember what we talked about in the beginning of this series about Acts 16 and about how Paul never intended to go to Philippi, but he was just diverted there by the Holy Spirit. He ends up in a place he never intended to go to, and he tries to go to church on the Sabbath, but there's no synagogue there. It's a Roman province. It's trying to uh, emulate Rome. There's no synagogue. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are there, and so they wander up on a group of ladies having a prayer meeting, a Bible study. And there's a lady there named Lydia. She's an Asian lady. She's a businesswoman. She trades purple cloth and garments. And she's part of this Bible study. And Paul walks up. He shares the gospel with her. Now, now think about this now, this, this Asian lady. We don't know a lot about her, her before this moment. But probably she, she grew up in a religious family. She was probably a very moral person. She worked hard at doing the right thing and having the right um, reputation. But she never surrendered her life to Jesus. She wasn't a follower of the Lord Jesus. She was a participant in religious activity. She heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul, and she surrendered her life to Jesus, and then everything went haywire from there. I mean, she invites him back to her house. The church ends up meeting in her house, being planted in her house. But she becomes the first convert in Philippi. Then Paul leaves there, and he's walking down the street, and he encounters a young Greek girl who's demon-possessed. She's being enslaved by a demon, but also enslaved by some wicked men that are using her to raise money and to gain uh, attention and just using her... Uh, possession as something to draw a crowd. And so Paul cast the demon out of her. And now you have this second convert, this young Greek girl who has a very, very painful past. Very painful. Got this Asian businesswoman, this young Greek girl with a very sordid, painful Past and then Paul gets thrown into prison. You know the story. He's sharing there, he's singing hymns and sharing the gospel, and then God bursts the prison open. There's a jailer there whose life depends on keeping the prisoners in prison. He wakes up and is about to commit suicide. I mean, this is a hardened corrections officer. He realizes that Paul has kept everybody there. Nobody's run away. Nobody's left. Paul says, no, no, we're all here. Don't don't do that. Paul leads him to Christ. So now you have the third sort of member of this burgeoning group of people. This is the beginning. They're meeting in Lydia's house. This is the beginning. This, This sort of totally oddball group of people that would have never had anything to do with each other had it not been for the gospel. That's how it started. And so you can only imagine how it had evolved since then. In other words, you don't start with three people as different as these three 
and then just evolve into some homogenous group of people that all look the same, act the same, and come from the same cloth. Mm -mm. This is a very diverse group of people. And they were no doubt reaching people that maybe a lot of other people wouldn't be able to reach. But they were doing, the, they were doing it. They were living the gospel and things were getting done. And so now in this moment where they're facing persecution and maybe they run the risk of uh, sort of moving off the path that they had been on or maybe, you know, uh, trying something new rather than staying focused on the goodness of the gospel and what had gotten them to this place. That's where this word from Paul comes in. Now let's go back to verse 3 so we can sort of set it all together. Philippians 2 verse 3, Paul says to them, he says, Now let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility. Let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Now remember last week, as we moved into this, we talked about humility. And remember, we defined humility as honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Now, the antidote to pride is a glimpse of God. Because we're all naturally, by nature, born selfish and born prideful. Pride and selfishness, are they go together. They're twins. And so the antidote to pride is a glimpse of God. Now, when you read the Bible, any time a person comes in contact with, you know, in case maybe you've been mulling over my definition of humility and trying to sort that out and you haven't been totally convinced that that's, the way to understand humility, then I'll help you this morning. I'll give you a couple examples. Remember uh, the passage in Isaiah 6. In the days of King Uzziah. Isaiah gets a glimpse of God. I'll, I'll read you what the Bible says. All right, Isaiah, in his just normal, natural human state, it says, in the year of king, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The posts of the door began to shake. Smoke fills the room. Angels are crying out. And what does Isaiah do? Does Isaiah say, wow, that's amazing? Or, boy, you know, I'm glad I'm, I'm here to participate in this. Or does he say, he says, woe is me. His response to what he's seen 
is, woe is me, I am undone. I, what I am seeing is unraveling me. I can't be in the presence of this. This glimpse of God starts unraveling him. And he says, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when you see a glimpse of God, pride is just eradicated. It's shattered. It's just, it disintegrates. It, it, it leaves you. Look, no, nothing has to be said. All you have to do is get a glimpse. What about John the Revelator? John in Revelation 1. Here's what it says. I'll read it to you. He says, I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a garment down to his feet and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were like white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like brass refined in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, what does it say? I fell down like dead. Like dead. I just, bam, hit the ground. No pride. Gone. I fell down like dead. So, let's think about this. If that's God, if that's what happens when a human being encounters God, has a glimpse of God, then what happens that first Christmas? What happens in the incarnation? Nobody's fallen down dead. Something radically different has happened. God has made himself seeable, relatable, accessible. Something's different. Suddenly there's a baby that people can see and hold and touch. This is new. The, 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 it, people haven't changed. The world hasn't changed. The situation hasn't changed. Something's changed. What changed was God changed. God did something he hadn't done before. So then in Philippians 2, when Paul says, let's think this through. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So here we have the maker of the universe, the sustainer of all that exists, yet he, he doesn't use his position for advantage. No, he instead used his position as the Son of God to obey the Father and submit to the plan. He used it as a chance to live 
second. He changed. He made himself relatable. He made himself seeable. He used the incarnation to display who was really first, who really deserved to be top priority. And it wasn't you and it wasn't me. He wasn't submitting to my plan or to your plan. It was the Father's plan. So then in verse 7 it says, But he made himself of no reputation. See, taking on the form of a slave, a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men. Found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See there? There's Jesus. No, no crown, no scepter, no throne. The giver and the author of life. Steps down from his position of authority. Gives up his rights. Gives up his glory. He's the ruler of the universe. And he makes himself a, a doulos, a slave. A slave. A slave. Think about this. Makes himself a slave. He joins our race. He becomes one of us. He lowers himself to the position of man. He reduces himself to life on this planet, in this brokenness. And in doing so, he subjected himself to all of these things that we are familiar with because we're subjected to on a regular basis. You see, he subjected himself to this world that we know because we live in it. To the loss, to the pain, to the disappointment, to betrayal, to hunger, to thirst, to rejection, you name it, he faced it. So what is it? What, what, what is the Bible telling us here? Think about what's happening. And, and then ask your question, why? Why is God doing this? Why does it have to be this way? And more than that, what exactly does God want us to know from this reality? God made himself relatable. How did he do that? What, what is happening? Humility made God relatable. He was relatable because he humbled himself. If he wouldn't have humbled himself, we would all have died. It's that simple. 
Did anyone force him to be humble? He humbled himself. He freely chose to humble himself. He did that. And in doing so, he made himself relatable and accessible. He, he's, he exhibited something for us. That this, the, the power of empathy. Empathy is... Next slide, if you would. Empathy is the ability to set aside your own life in order to relate to someone else's. Set aside your own life in order to relate to someone else's. Now, here's how the Bible describes what Jesus did. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Why is that important? And why why is the Bible making sure that we know that and understand that? Because it's teaching us that God is relatable, that, that we can relate to Him because He can relate to us. You see, in order to... To relate, there's got to be this, uh, you know, we've got to be able to connect. Like if I could relate to you, but you can't relate to me, then it's, we're dis. We can relate to him because of what he did on our behalf. You see, we don't have a high priest who, who is unable to sympathize. So when, you, when you're going through something and I'm going through something, he, he understands. He can sympathize. But notice what the very next verse says. Okay? God humbles himself, becomes relatable. He can sympathize with us. We can relate to him. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. See, if he's not relatable, you can't draw near. You're going to be as dead. See, he has to make that, he has to, through humility, make that accessible to me and to you. So this is the, again, just another place in Scripture that goes behind what we talked about last week, that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Because when, you're, when you humble yourself and when I humble myself, the same thing happens. We're, we're following in the footsteps of the one who paved the way. And so he says, because he can sympathize, that we can, we can rush to the throne of grace because He gives grace to the humble. See, th- when you became a Christian, however that happened, wherever you were, where, what it, whenever that moment was, for many of you that are here this morning that are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, 
Well, in that moment that that redemption took place, you realized something. You realized that you could run to him. You realized that he was safe. You realized that you could relate to him because he could relate to you. Because if you couldn't relate to him, then you couldn't run to him. If he didn't humble himself, where would you be this morning? You wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't be here. None of us would be here. You see, we, we realize that with all of our baggage and all of our regrets and all of our mistakes and all of our past, that, that he was safe, that we could run to him because he could relate to us, that he, he knew what it's, he knows what it's like to live in this world. He understands us. He gets us. And so he's a safe place. And so we can run to him for salvation. So when the Bible says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, why? Why is, why is Paul telling this little church in Philippi? This And why is the Bible telling me and you this this morning? Well, why should we have this mind in us? What does it do to you when you have this mind in you? What does it do to me? How does it change us? What did we just talk about? What, it, what happens? It makes me and you relatable. That's what it does. When we have this mind, what he's saying is, have the mind of Christ. Humble yourself. Be humble. And you'll become relatable. So the next question is, well, okay, let's run with that. Why do I want to be relatable? What's the great need for me and you to be relatable? Why is that so important? Oh, it's. It's crazy important. See, the most powerful thing that we can do is become a safe place for broken people to run to. That's the most powerful thing you can do. That's the most powerful thing we can be. What do you think a world filled with broken people needs? Well, what it doesn't need is an organization of perfect people. That's what it doesn't need. So, amen, we meet the grade. We're definitely not that, so we're good. There. Yeah. See, you think about all the ways you can't be a safe place for broken people to run to. Okay? I'm not saying these are bad things. I'm just saying, just think about what I'm not saying. You know what doesn't make you a safe place for broken people to run to? Being right. No broken people are running to you because, oh, you're right. Oh, you, you, you know all the answers. You're right. You have the correct information. So... That's not, that's not, broken people aren't running to that. 
No broken person is compelled to come to somebody who thinks they're right. Even if they are right, they won't compel anybody to run to you. So what will? In other words, because we could just have this conversation and then we could all go home, but nothing's going to change unless you really understand the nuts and bolts of what does this really look like? What does it really look like to humble yourself in such a way that you exhibit empathy so that you become a person that attracts broken people, that broken people feel safe to run to. What does that actually look like? Well, it, it doesn't look like being right. But it does look like being, first of all, present. Now, I want, I want you to think about what Jesus didn't do. Jesus didn't send us the solution. He didn't send us the information. He didn't send us help. He didn't send us assistance. See, Jesus didn't look down at the plight of mankind and go, oh, what they need is a stimulus check. He didn't do that. He didn't send you an EBT card. That's not what he did. He didn't send you money. He didn't send you information. He didn't send you a booklet. He sent you himself. And so if you are going to humble yourself so that broken people will run to you, the first thing you got to understand is nobody, you're not going to impact anybody's life if, if you're not present. The requirement, A, number one, is you got to be present. You are the key. You You've got to be there, present, in that moment, in that situation, and not listen. Not just there. That's not what I mean by present. Jesus didn't show up and he was just here. See, he didn't show up and stay in the penthouse. He was here, but, you know, we couldn't get through security to see him. Mm -mm. No, no. He was present, but how was he present? He was present for others. So you now and me now, let's start thinking this through. So for us to have this mind in us, we would be present on behalf of others. We'd be present for someone else. So I just started thinking about it. I started thinking about all the ways that so many of you, every time you come into this place, you're here, but you're here for somebody else. Which is amazing. You see, what makes this church such a great church is that it's filled with people following a great God. That's what makes a great church. And so I'm going to explain to you what I'm talking about here for somebody else. I started thinking about how I started thinking about Pastor Brian. I started thinking about do you, if you go spend some time in the youth department, there's youth leaders in the youth department 
that have been serving in the youth ministry longer than the students they're serving have been alive. Think about that. For like decades. And they're still there serving. Every single week. Not not for a year, not for a season. I'm talking about decade. I mean, using their vacation to go on mission trips with the students, using their vacation to go to camp with their, in other words, when they come on this property, they're here for somebody else. Amen. You understand that? So if you got a teenager who's in the youth ministry, what's so amazing about that is that there, there are people there. You, you look, you don't, you don't have to ask yourself, well, you know what? I wonder if Mr. Tox here, Mr. Luke, I wonder if they love my, my, uh, middle school son. You don't even have to ask that question. Look at what they've done. They, they're present for somebody else. Not their kids. Their kids are grown. For your kids, my kids. Start thinking about I started thinking about Mr. Steve teaching his community group and third and fourth grade boys and how excited he gets every week and year after year. You know, he'd probably like to go to community group sometimes probably like to go to community group with his wife but he doesn't he teaches our little boys how to grow up and be men I thought about Miss Teresa and I thought you know I bet I bet Miss Teresa would really like to go to community group with Randy sometimes wouldn't it be good you could go sit with your husband You know, you taught school for 20 gazillion years. I don't know how many years it was, but you finally got done with that. So aren't you done? Didn't you pay your dues? It's over like enough of that. And what do you do every Sunday? You're teaching little girls the gospel. You're carrying all these little things in, got all these things planned, all this. Well, you're still... Raising your family and loving your grandkids. Are you doing that for other people? Every time you come on the campus. Present. For somebody else. You know, I think about our preschool workers. Here's the thing. No, No one in the preschool, like, you're not getting any credit for that. You know, the kids aren't saying, you know, you did a great job today. I really appreciate it. You knocked it out of the park. Mm-mm. You know, the, every Sunday there, there's people sitting in there rocking babies and singing to them and Teaching little preschoolers that Jesus loves them. 
the church is safe, that Jesus is safe, that he's relatable. No, no, you're not getting any earthly return on that investment. Until, until one day down the line, there's that girl or boy, you changed their diaper, held them, sung to them, played with that spit-covered block with them for about 10, 15 minutes. And then, then that day comes when they're standing up here getting the Timothy Award and you're, you're like, yeah, I changed their diaper. I mean, that makes them feel weird, but it's cool. Then they graduate high school. Then they go on with their life. And, and God opens all these opportunities for them. And, they, and you were a part of that along the way. See, because you... you but what, what happened? You humbled yourself. You put your life on hold. Like, you, you're like, well... You know, I, I want to go to community group. I mean, I want to be in service. I don't, I don't want to have to stay for the second service to catch it or go home and watch it online. But you do. You humble yourself for the sake of others. And how do you do that? You empathize with them. You see value in that. You put your life aside so you can relate to someone else. That's what makes this place great. It's just a, a million examples of, you know, I'd be at, I'd be at some uh, ball game or some, something going on. And, I mean, look, I'm there, but, I mean, my kid's that playing or something, right? I'm, I'm there because it's some function at my kid's school or their ball game or something. So it's good. I mean, I get to see other people's kids and you know, and encourage them and all that. But, you know, I'm not there for them, really. I'm there for my kids. And then Michelle Caldwell shows up with her camera. She don't have a kid there. Josiah doesn't go to school there. Roger's not there. But she's there taking pictures of this moment in their life. And then she's gone. She takes pictures and says hello to everybody, and then she's gone. You know, there's, there's two or three of y'all in the church, and like, it's like your ministry. You just, you just are, are always around with your camera, just commemorating moments. It's about them. It's not about you. You don't, you don't have anything to do with the situation other than somebody's having a moment that you love and care about. It happens all the time. But here, here's what we have to remember. That we've all, you, we've all, all of you have met that kid along the way. And you're just like, man, Jesus can't help that fool. That kid that just, you know, I was thinking about serving in some capacity, but then I met that kid. 
I can't handle that kid. That kid is impossible. You know, you know who that kid is? That's me. That's me. I'm that kid that every time your kid invited me to come to your house, you told your kid, don't ever invite him back again. And don't hang out with him. Don't be friends with him. And if you do, we're moving schools. I'm not joking. That's how it went down. And I knew it. I could see it on their faces. I could see the dread in people's eyes when I walked into the room. Like, oh, man. They'd make comments about how, you know, my hygiene, the way I was dressed, what I smelled like, the condition of my teeth. I still remember like it was yesterday. You know, do you have a toothbrush? Why don't you take Tony upstairs and I think in that third drawer, there's some, uh, I, where I put your play clothes, there's some stuff in there that'll fit him. Well, I'm wearing clothes. But here's the thing. Somebody along the way had to be present for me. Somebody had to look beyond. Somebody had to say, I'm going to put my life on hold and I'm going to invest in him. Somebody had to do that. See, if you... If you really knew me, if you hung around with me, you would, you would, you would think, man, you know, I know how to work on cars. I know how to build stuff. I know how to, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty handy fella. You'd think, wow, he must have grown up with a dad that, you know, taught him how to work on cars and taught them how to build stuff and use power tools and how to do things. No, I didn't have a dad. You know that. So how did I learn all that? Somebody had to put their life aside. Some old retired man across the street named Paul. He'd sit there on his porch and he'd watch. 
And he watched me and he watched me and he watched me. And then finally he couldn't take it anymore. I mean, I just terrorized everybody. So he came over one day and he said, hey, you ever driven a tractor? I'm like, are you kidding me? No, I've never driven a tractor. He said, you want to learn? I got this old tractor and I need some help. Maybe you could learn to drive. He taught me how to drive a tractor. He taught me how to change oil in a car. He taught me how to build stuff. But here's what he taught me. He taught me, he taught me the power of being present for somebody else. You see, he could have just sat there and drank his coffee and enjoyed his retirement. He didn't know me. He didn't owe me anything. But he just did it. He just took me under his wing. And he would encourage me and inspire me to dream and to believe that things could come to pass. And he taught me how to work hard and not give up. He taught me all that. He was present for me. I'm just wondering this morning, who, who are you present for? See, I, it, never, it never left me. My whole life has been about trying to be present for other people. I thank God every day I get to get up every single day and be present for other people. What a joy it is. I get to love people that I don't have to love. I set my life aside for them. I get to Work hard to pay for whatever they need, to give them whatever they want, to teach them to dream that anything's possible, that God is a great God, and that He wants to do exceedingly abundantly above anything you could ask or think. Because somebody was present for me. And you see, when I met Jesus, it was because I realized Jesus could relate to me. He was safe because he, he understood what I'd been through. I just wonder, I just wonder, I don't know, but I wonder what if we decided to never settle for a version of the gospel that doesn't move us to love somebody who's different than you? Well, what would happen? What if we just... What if the best version of you can never exist without humility? And humility only works if you're present for somebody else. Who are you present for? When you came here this morning, see, this is kind of an oddball morning. We're all in here together, and most of us are watching online.
Had this been a typical Sunday, who, who did you come here for? Do you think... I'm just being honest. Do you think, really? Do you really genuinely think that if you just keep listening to sermons, you're just going to keep growing? Is that what you think? You think like the difference between who you are right now and who you aspire to be is going to become a reality through more information. Is that what you think? I mean, this is the one who's devoted his life to preparing the sermons that I'm now short-selling. You understand? Is that what you think? Do you think what you need is a, is a greater consumption of sermons? What you need is, that, that'll do it. That's going to get you over the top. See, this in here, what God's designed this in here to be is this is fuel to fill you up to further being present for more other people. That's what this is for. See, God didn't save us to believe the gospel. He saved us to demonstrate the gospel. You see, the, the way that God, what God used to bring us into the family was just the means to a different end. It doesn't just keep going. You know, the, 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 the misconception is we think that because we came through this door this way, that we just keep going through the same door. But what you don't understand is you already went through that door. And you only go through that door one time. Just once. Just one time. Once you go through that door, it's about demonstrating the gospel. And you know what? To demonstrate the gospel, you got to be relatable. Who's going to? Because here comes the next big lie, misconception that's got everybody tangled up and Barren and unfruitful. Demonstrating the gospel is not living rightly. It's loving rightly. Broken people aren't running to you because of your high moral position.
See, we're, the, the, the misconception is, is that we, we so oftentimes are devoting so much energy to living rightly. And what's really fueling that is our confusion about the gospel. That what we're actually believing is that we're so fixated on living rightly. Why? Because we feel that if we live rightly, then we'll somehow earn the favor of God or maintain the favor of God or ultimately possess the eternal gift of God. That's a lie. The truth is, is that all of our energy should be devoted to loving rightly. And if you're loving rightly, you're automatically living rightly. You understand what I'm saying? Automatically. You can't love rightly and not live rightly. It's impossible. That is impossible. So put your eggs in the right basket. You see? Become relatable. Humble yourself. Put your life aside for the sake of someone else. And I'm just telling you that if you can't do that here in the family, you, you can't do that anywhere. This is step one. This is JV. JV humility is here. Here. You can't do it there. If every time you drive on this campus... It's for you, or I know what you're thinking. I say to you, why'd you come to church this morning? And you say, I came to church for God. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. I don't know who you're following, but it's not the God in my Bible. See, he came not to be served, but to what's the word? So if you're following him, what are you going to do? Now, can you get around it? Is there a loophole? Is there a snag? Is there a... Did he say, what you need is 10,000 sermons. After 10,000, then you're ready. Then you're equipped. Then you can do it. Is that what he said? Is that what the book of Acts teaches? Or is it get saved and get with it? That's what it is. Isn't that how it goes? Yeah. Yeah. So what if I told you that every single one of us could be truly great? Look at verse 9. We spent a little time last week talking about the word therefore, didn't we? You can't just wake up in the morning and look at your spouse and go, therefore... I mean, you can if you're a female because you would automatically know that that's talking about something that was, you know, who knows where. But the rest of us are totally lost. I need context. Therefore means because of what I just said, this now becomes pertinent information, right? So what did we just say? Well, we're going to let this mind that was in Christ Jesus be in us who humbled himself. He didn't, he didn't consider it. 
to something to be grasped that he was in the form of God, but he came in the likeness of man. He humbled himself. Therefore, therefore, because he humbled himself, because he became relatable, because he was present on someone else's behalf, because he put his life aside for the good of someone else, because there was empathy, there's humility. Therefore, because of all of that, therefore, God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name. Why is that? Therefore. You see, if there's no, if there's no humility, then there's no therefore and there's no this. You understand? This is the doorway to greatness. This is the path. I mean, I'm talking real greatness, real make an eternal difference greatness, real make your life count for something real, no matter how old you are, how new you are, how long you've been doing whatever you've been doing, how much you know, how much you don't know, it doesn't matter what your education is or how, none of that matters. Therefore, God highly exalted him, has given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility leads to greatness. You can't be humble if you're not present. You can't be humble by yourself. You can't be humble without empathy. This is impossible. But humility leads to greatness. Hebrews chapter 12. It doesn't matter where you turn the Bible, that the principle is universally always there. Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Therefore, because of that, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How is he in this position? Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He put his life aside for someone else. To which we say, yeah, Tony, yeah, yeah but, but that's Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Amen. You're not. I'm not. That's not us. That's Jesus. To which Jesus comes along and he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be what? Oh. Whoever. Now, are you a whoever? Is there a qualification on that? Yes, there is. You have to be a whoever. It means you have to be Alive. If you're alive, if you're human and you breathe, you meet the criteria. You can be exalted. Who can be exalted? Whoever. You mean to tell me that a sixth grader can come to faith in Christ and be exalted? He can humble himself and be exalted at school. He can share the gospel at school. He can do ministry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A 10-year-old can be exalted. A high school student can be exalted. A college student can be exalted. A senior adult can be exalted. A person with terminal cancer can be exalted, can humble themselves and be exalted. A person who can't read or write can humble themselves and be exalted. A person with the most seedy, bad, horrible past you can possibly imagine can be exalted. Whoever. 
The only qualification is humility. First Peter chapter 5. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. See, he'll, he'll exalt you. Because that's what he does. Because that's who he is. God saved us to be a community of people. See, when, when the first time you walked in here and you were like, wow, what's happening? How many hundreds and hundreds of baptism testimonies have we heard? People grew up in every other kind of denomination you can imagine. People who grew up completely out of church. It doesn't matter. And they say the same thing. And they say, well, I walked in here and something was different. I, I felt a presence. There was a, it was just a difference. Something's different. Now, let me tell you, you know what that is? That's a group of people. Who are present for other people. That's what that is. You walked into a community of people that are devoted to being present for other people. And you immediately started to feel loved. You immediately started to feel safe. You immediately started to feel understood. You immediately started to feel, why? Because there's people all around you on every aisle, in every arena, in every classroom, in every ministry that show up every single Sunday. Year in, year out for someone else. And you know what? They might be in here one or two Sundays a month. They get half the sermons you get. They get almost no community group. And you're piddling along and they, they're growing leaps and bounds like crazy all over the place. Because that's the point. That's the point. That's what it's all about. They're demonstrating the gospel. See, you can't be, you can't be present for the God of this Bible and not be present for somebody else. Can't be. It's impossible. Can't be. Set your life aside for the sake of somebody else. The only thing that can stop us is us.